Let's look in Isaiah chapter 8. Our last lesson, we stopped in verse 10, but I think verse 9 and 10, we need to remind everyone because it's been a long time. It's been long enough that you may have uh, lost some of the thought. So, let me give you chapter 8 again, just briefly the outline and come down to verse 9. Remember the first part, there was divine instruction and this name that God gave Isaiah's son, Meher Shalah Hashbos, you find it in verse 1. And then you find the Assyrian that was to come in verses 5 through 8. And then you find the answer of faith, and that's what we close with in verses 9 and 10 when God said, and let's read it again in verse 9, Isaiah 8 verse 9, Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. And give ear, all ye far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Uh, uh, the, you can find here that God's judgment is unresistible, un- regardless of what uh, people do. They can gird themselves. They can associate themselves. They can uh, do whatever they want to make plans against God's people. It says in verse 10, Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. So God is able to bring it to naught. Speak the word and it shall not stand. They can speak all the words they want to, make all the plans they want to. But it says, for God is with us. And you know that has an application to you and I today. The answer of, the answer of faith for you and I today is that whatever the enemies of God and God's people may uh, bring against you and I, bring against the church, God says that all the counsel, the evil counsel, shall not stand. You and I both have suffered persecution from various corners and uh, avenues in times past. But remember, the Bible says this also. I believe this is Isaiah 54, verse 17. It's a verse you need to remember. Isaiah 54, verse 17. You can check it out. But it says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And it says, And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So we find that uh, Isaiah 54, 17, was that it? Okay. Um, So anyway, we find that God will take care of us, won't He? And uh, He says that regardless of the weapons that are formed against us, they're not going to prosper. And the tongues that rise up against us, in judgment, thou shalt condemn. And this is our heritage. And so we can be thankful that God is on our side. We'll find in our studies in the next chapter, too, that there are certain things that God is always, even though Israel would not repent of their sins, He said, yet His hand was still stretched out, wanting them to repent. And many times they would not. But it doesn't mean that God wasn't ready for them to do that. Now let's look at verses 11 through 20 in the 8th chapter. And this section is a word to the faithful remnant. Remember God had promised that a remnant would return out of this uh, trouble that they were having with Assyria. And this is God's promise and word to his faithful uh, remnant that shall return. In verse 11 it says, For the Lord spake thus to me, this is Isaiah, with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. 
saying. We'll get the message that he was saying in just a moment. But there's so much in verse 11, I hate to pass over it quickly and lightly. Notice it says, For the Lord spake thus to me. This morning we mentioned that the thing should be, Thus saith the Lord. And notice it says, With a strong hand. In other words, in the strength of hand, that his word was so strong and powerful, that is, if he laid his strong arm, right hand, arm of of strength upon him. Now see, God's word comes with power. And he says, For God, the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand. He spake with force to Isaiah. And it says, And instructed me. God's word is full of what? Instruction. The Bible says instruction in righteousness. And what is it? That I should walk should not walk. He tells him what not to do. Should not walk in the way of this people. Now the way of this people, saying, and he quotes the way of this people, say ye not a confederacy to all them to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. In other words, they were saying, well, you have to join together in this confederacy or you're going to go under. You're not going to prosper and you know you'll have to suffer the consequences. I was listening to a news comment this evening on one of the programs. If I can recall exactly the name of it, I can't think of the name of the program, but it's where several of them get together and they're discussing certain situations. And they were talking about this uh, treaty that is being made about uh, poisonous gases and various things, you know. And uh, one of the comments was this. The gentleman made this comment, says, well, you know that he had all the various ones that seem to be high ups and approval of all of those. And this uh, Mona, you remember, that comes on there, this lady said, well, just because uh, you have the pedigree of all of these people that are supposed to be important doesn't make the treaty right. Think of this now in the in the religious realm you say well we got Jerry Falwell for it we got Billy Graham for it we got this one for it and we got the head of this school over here and the head of that school over there so it all must be alright that doesn't make it right just because you call a lot of big big names and I'm not saying it's right or wrong about the treaty they're making I'm not just arguing that point I'm just saying the point made is this that just because you have big names doesn't mean that a thing is good or bad and uh, that's the only point I was making. Uh, the point I was making is simply this, that just because you have a lot of people that agree on something doesn't make that thing right. And it says, Say ye not a confederacy to all them whom this people shall say a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. In other words, just because they've got big names and just because they've got control and be, just because they've made a confederacy, it says... Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. They've done this to try to protect themselves. But it says in verse 13, it tells you what comfort comes to them that fear God. Now look, it says, Sanctify the Lord of hosts Himself. You set Him apart Himself. (coughs) Sanctify means to set apart the Lord Himself in your heart. And let Him be your fear. Don't fear this confederacy. Don't fear this counsel that people make and saying if you don't join in with us you're in for it you know if you don't join in with the powers that be 
if you don't join in with the majority, if you don't go as the people go, and he's telling Isaiah, don't fear that, but he says, set God apart in your heart, and let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. Now, if you and I would learn to do that, we wouldn't mind so much what the world, or the flesh, or the devil, or anybody else said about us. If we had let God be our, uh, separate ourselves to God, and, and not do, look, in verse 11, that I should not walk in the way of this people. God tell, told him not to walk in the way of this people because this is what they were going to do. And he says, you don't walk in their way, but you be a separate person. And you put God, separate Him in your heart, and let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. Now look, in verse 14, and He shall be for a sanctuary. He's going to be your uh, sanctuary. He's going to be your refuge. You can go to Him for a sanctuary. Now, but for a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, those that will not believe God and serve God and set Him apart to both the houses of Israel. That means uh, Israel and Judah both. For a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This same stone that is uh, that we build upon, speaking prophetically of Christ, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them that stumble at the word. As Peter uses this very same scripture, look in the book of First Peter. Chapter 2. Let's read verse 7 and 8. Unto you therefore which believe, He is precious. In other words, if you sanctify Him in your heart, He's precious. He'll bring you comfort. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Now in verse 8, he quotes this very scripture. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But Peter says, even to them which stumble at the Word. You see that? Even to them which stumble at the Word. So Peter takes that same Scripture and applies it to those that are stumbling at the Word and will not put God uh, in their hearts and sanctify the Lord God. And it says, "...being disobedient whereunto they also were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light." So there's a difference between the two. Back in our text in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, "...so He was going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel." You see that? "...to both the houses of Israel." I'll tell you, we need to read also Romans 9, verses 32 and 33. Romans 9, and he's speaking of how Israel uh, accepted Christ. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. They stumbled at that stumbling stone. For, as it is written, and he uh, quotes... Uh, Another passage from Isaiah, it's 28 verse 16 where this is cited, but very similar. It says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed or confounded. So, he says he lays in Zion a stumbling stone. And here's the reference to Christ. If you have Isaiah 8, also turn over to Isaiah 28, if you will. Isaiah 8 is where we're studying, but just turn over to Isaiah 28 and verse 16. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, 
the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and he that believeth on him shall not make haste. You know, it says that he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. He that believeth on him shall not be ashamed. He that believeth on him shall not make haste. And the word means actually, he who comes to God through Christ for salvation shall never be confounded. He need not haste to flee away to someone else. No enemy shall harm him. He shall not be disappointed. So it's not only not being ashamed as if you're ashamed of something, but you'll not be confused and you'll not be confounded and you'll not have to make haste to go another direction to find salvation. Because this is a sure stone, a tried stone, and a precious cornerstone, and a sure foundation. And it's speaking of Christ. There's all kinds of things we could say about that uh, in our text here, but let's go on back and teach the verse by verse in chapter 8 of uh, Isaiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 8, we're still talking about a word to the faithful remnant. And verse 15 says, And many among them shall stumble. You have Isaiah 8, verse 15. And many among them shall stumble and fall, and be broken, and be snared, and be taken. Then it says, Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. The ones among them that would not be bound by the confederacy, and not fall for anything that comes along. He says, Bind up the testimony. In other words, Seal the law. Rest upon this law among my disciples. In other words, be governed solely and completely by what is written. Look at that verse again. You need to just put your eyes upon that verse. God says, bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. Are you and I the kind that want to be governed solely, totally by what is written? We'll get down to verse 20 in a minute. We'll emphasize that greater. And he says, And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob because of their sins. And I will look for him. Then in verse 18, Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. What were the two sons? Remember the two sons? He had one that was called Meher, Shalah, Hashbaz. We had it in verse 1. And remember we said that it means uh, swift to the booty, speedy to the prey. It means that uh, it's a symbolical name given by Isaiah, by the Lord's direction, to Isaiah's son. And it's prophetic of the fact that, they, that in making speed to the spoil, hasteneth the prey, that actually he was emphasizing that Assyria would come in and be speedy to spoil both the houses of Israel. Now then, but in verse uh, 18 it says, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs. What was the other one's name? Sher Jacob, remember? We had him in the last chapter. Let me give you chapter 7. And verse 3, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Sherjaseb thy son. Sherjaseb means the remnant shall return. 
So one son means that the speed to the spoil, that they would be spoiled. The other son means it has a... One of them is disappointing, isn't it? That they would be spoiled. They would be taken. They would be judged. The other one is a ray of hope. The remnant shall return. And Isaiah says, My sons are for signs. You say, Preacher, are you just making this up? Isaiah said these sons were given him for what signs? The very names are in, in indicating what is going to take place. And the signs that were going to take place were, and the wonders in Israel were that these two things, they would be under judgment and then there would be a remnant that would be saved. Let's read verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me, Isaiah speaking, are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? In other words, when someone tells you to find out what's going to go on in the future by seeking to familiar spirits or witchery, it says, shouldn't God's people seek to God who is the God of the living rather than to go to, to, to the other realm? Amen. So, And God forbids going to any of mediums to try to find out what's going to happen tomorrow. Did you know this comes right on down to even what, when you have these little circuses or carnivals in town where you have the palm readers and all these kind of fortune tellers that, that are in their little booths and tents? Christian people shouldn't... You say, preacher, that's getting a little bit radical. No, it isn't. You stay away from those places. You have no business in there whatsoever. You just don't have any business in there. If you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, you wait till it comes and ask God to guide you for that tomorrow. In fact, you don't even know there's going to be a tomorrow. James says, you know what? Not what shall be on the morrow. Right? He says, you should rather say, if we live, the Lord, if the Lord wills, we'll come to the morrow. And the Bible further says, Jesus said, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And he says, take no thought for your life. What you shall eat, what you shall drink, what, wherewith all you shall be clothed. For sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So you don't have to worry about tomorrow. God holds tomorrow. And... Uh, a lot of people get so anxious and say, well, you know, that that uh, they've got these psychics on TV, you know, and advertising. These are the real ones, you know. There's some fake ones, but there's some genuine ones out there. Be sure and go to a good one. And so they're, they're making their pitch. And they say, well, you know, that one told me all is going to happen, and I married this guy or I, this guy. Well, I, I wonder if they told them how many ones they were going to divorce, too. But anyway... They tell them all their stuff, you know. And they act like they're just happy as a lark because they know all that's going to happen to them. I don't want to know what's going to happen to me because I'm taking it a day at a time. I'm glad today's as good as it is because tomorrow may not be as good. And the Bible teaches that. The Bible says, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth until when the evil days draw nigh that... As you grow older, the evil days draw nigh. Some of us know what that's all about, don't we? Aches and pains and this and that and the other and things falling apart. You young people, be thankful that you've got strength and vitality and youth now. Because, you know, you only have one alternative. Either live to be old like us or you won't live at all. So, uh, you, you've either, you have not many options 
So we must be thankful for today, all of us, young or old. I used to, as a child, I was always thankful for every day. You know, I really was. When I was growing up, I was just thankful to the Lord for another day, and I was thankful for life and vitality. And uh, I'd like to see young people today that would consider life as a real blessing instead of a a drag, as some of them say, oh, it's a drag, it's a bore. You're, You're fortunate to be alive. And I can't understand so many young people wanting to get rid of this life when you God has given you life and you want to live it as long as He gives you life. And everyone should have that attitude and be thankful for it. And and promote that kind of thinking among your among your peers and try to get them to realize that, that it's a blessing to just be alive. And you have a lot to look forward to. Say, well, the world's too complicated and there's too many problems. And I don't know how to deal with this problem and that problem. You, you put God first and He'll help you deal with all the problems as they come along. And every generation has its own set of, of problems that come to them. I want you to notice this. It says, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, that's verse 19, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God? That's the question. For the living to the dead? This is what God's people. Then it says in verse 20, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Well, that's a good rule of thumb, isn't it? You stick to the word. And if they don't speak according to this word, it's talking about God's word. It is because what? If there's no light, then there's nothing but darkness. It is because there is no light in them. You say, well, those people seem to have light. Yes, but I'll tell you, there's, there's a lot of that light that comes from the depths of darkness, and it's only temporary, and it just shows forth a temporary prediction of what something that might happen. But the, the whole counsel of it and the, and the source of it is evil. And don't look to... Let me go back and read. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. When thou art coming to the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, listen carefully. Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 12. When thou art coming to the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. Now then, God says those things are abominations. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch. You see, witchcraft is a sin, an abomination in the sight of God. Or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or necromancer, for all these, all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. See, God is against all that kind of thing. We could go back and take each one of these words and show you what each one of them mean in themselves. If I, I, I don't have any notes in my margin on this particular thing, but I think that a necromancer has to do with telling the future by the entrails of animals. One of these things does, and I believe that's the one that does. That someone would tell you the future by cutting open some animal and, and using that to divine what's going to happen. There's all kinds of weird things in this world. And you're seeing a lot of weirdness on television today. Some of the programs that they get out. 
I'm telling you, they I don't know where they dream up this stuff. It probably comes from this same source. Because it seems to be just about that far out. And listen, young people, let me say this. I may not be preaching all I'd like to preach tonight, but let me just say this. When you see something that looks so unnatural and so vulgar on television, you change the channel. Get rid of it or just turn it off completely. At least change it and try to find some kind of a family program or listen to the news, if nothing else. But the thing about it is, you don't want to, you don't want to fill your minds with all kinds of weird objects, all kinds of freakish type of images. You say, well, preacher, what does that hurt? It's only a show. Did you know that that will be planted in your mind? What you see is planted in your mind. And it's there from now on. You say, well, I never think about it. You can. It can be recalled. Your mind is a greater computer than they got made out there with, you know, all the modern advancement because it will recall those images at some time when that, that they will do you harm. And it will hurt you when they're recalled. So don't let your mind be filled with it. And uh, I think it would be well if you would take that advice. It says in verse 20, back in our text, Isaiah 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So you stick to the word of God, and the word of God has all the direction that you need to live a Christian life. Remember we said this morning that a man, the man of God may be truly, truly. You know, that's all through you. Completely, inwardly, totally, fully, truly furnished unto all good works. So the word of God has enough instruction has complete instruction so that you're not lacking in any direction to do the things of God. Did you know all that I've ever found to do to do in the in the things of God and in the work of God in the ministry and preaching and teaching? I found the basis of it right here in the Word of God. There have been others that have expounded it, but they found their source here too that was any benefit to me. The ones that didn't find their source here would not benefit to me. The ones that were just writings... Uh, off the top of their minds without having the source, and this, the source, were not any benefit to me as a preacher. And that's exactly what will be beneficial to you is that which is grounded upon the Word of God. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this Word, it is because there is no light in them. Verse 21 says, And they shall pass through it hardly, uh, be stead and hungry, and it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. You see, without God, there is no chance of anything going right. The coming of great distress upon them is predicted in verse 21 and 22. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness. By the way, if you're looking any other place than unto the Lord, there's trouble and darkness, and it says dimness of anguish, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Well, I don't want to go in that direction. Well, then where is the light in verse 20? Look in verse 20, it says, uh, it says to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So there is light then in those that seek the word. And the darkness comes, the coming of great distress in verse 20 and 21, unto those that look otherwise. 
Verse 22 says, I mean, I should have said verse 21 and verse 22. Verse 22 says, They shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness. And it says, Dimness and anguish of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Now in chapter 9 of Isaiah, the first part of it, verses 1 through 7, the message is this, a message of hope. It's a message of hope. And then in the latter part of it, there's impending judgment upon Israel. A message of hope and then judgment. Verses 1 through 7 is this message. And the judgment upon Israel is verses 8 through 12. And then it continues on to show various stages of that judgment. But in Isaiah chapter 9, it says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when the first, the first light, the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Uh, this is quoted in the New Testament concerning Christ and the light rising through Him. It says in verse 2, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land in the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined. So God is giving him, uh, giving us here a look backward to what Israel had gone through and a look forward to what uh, would happen to the people, even the Gentiles. And so it takes a look both directions. This dimness that shall not be such as was in her vexation, this is the condition that we've just described, this dimness that the last two verses of chapter 8 have described. But the the light that comes to the Gentiles, the people that walk in darkness and see a great light, applies to Christ's coming and His first coming and His second coming that they're bound together because you come on down to verse 6 and 7 and you have both the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ spoken of. And so when Christ comes, there's going to be a fulfillment of, of lightning, uh, light, enlightening to the Gentiles of their darkness and in their condition, and they're going to receive the great light that comes to them. I want to give you this as we look at it. In these first verses, let's notice again, and we'll deal with verse 1 and 2, and give you an example of what had already happened, the people that walked in darkness, and it had already been a condition of Israel. So notice verse, verse uh, 1. It says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And he had already done that. He had lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. And that means of the populace of the Gentiles. So if you turn back to 2 Kings 15, verse 29. I want you to turn there. 2 Kings 15, verse 29. It shows us that in the days of a certain king, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, T-I-G-L-A-T-H, and then there's a dash, Pileser. You have 2 Kings 15, verse 29. 
In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And this is the same one we're dealing with over there. And he took Ijon and Abel, Beth, Meha, and Genoa, and Kedash, and Hazel, and Gilead, and Galilee. Now look, Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. So these are the people that sat in darkness. And these are the people that were taken captive. At that time. And in the book of Isaiah, it looks back to these that were first likely afflicted in the land. Back in Isaiah now, chapter 9, verse 1. These that were first lightly afflicted, the, Zan- the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. And then it says... Here's a prediction of the light. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land and shadow of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Now it was not only true for Israel of old that in Isaiah's time he predicted a day of light for them, but in the New Testament it's it's worded right after the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter four. It says in verse 13, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in, the, in Capernaum, which is the, upon the sea of the coast, in the borders of Zabulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, listen, which was spoken by Esaias, or Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the same thing that we're quoting from Isaiah chapter 9, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light, saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. So with Christ's first coming, He promised to be a light that would lighten the Gentiles and the glory of His people Israel. And so, back there, now let me try to put it, I realize all this is difficult, but if you realize that what Isaiah was saying, that these people had experienced this great darkness, even in the past, under this king, Tiglath-Pileser, back in the book of Second Kings that we referred to. But even then, they had a ray of hope, because God was giving them in Isaiah's day a ray of hope, but most especially... Applying it to Christ's first coming, the people that sat in darkness saw a great light because He was to be the light of the world and He was not only to be a light that would lighten His people, uh, Israel, but a light that would lighten the Gentiles or be a source of light to them, the light of salvation. And there are scriptures in uh, the book of Acts and various other places that show the fulfillment of this prophecy. Uh, with Christ coming and with the gospel that he brought and the good news of salvation through Christ's death and burial and resurrection. So, at that point, we'll have to close in just a moment, I realize. But let's keep that in mind when we pick up the rest of the ninth chapter because when we get down to verses 6 and 7, we're going to have combined a double advent, his first and second coming, And they're blended together 
in verses 6 and 7. Let me just read them and we'll get into the meat of it in our next lesson. But you'll see that there's a promise of the first coming and then there's a promise of the final coming of Christ and what will take place place then. Verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is a promise of the birth of Christ. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now then, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So you have combined with the first coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, with the government that he will bring, of which there will be no end, and that government will be established when the second coming of Christ takes place. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it. When will he sit upon that throne? When he comes again. To order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth and even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What he's saying here. What Isaiah is saying that as Christ is coming, he's going to fulfill the the promises made here in his first ad. He's going to Satisfy the promises made here in his first advent, and they will not be completely fulfilled until finally he sits upon the throne of David and, and in the millennium kingdom and in the future and the eternal state and of his kingdom there will be no end. And that was the promise that was made to Mary, wasn't it? When Christ was promised to be born of her, that he would sit upon the throne of David and of his kingdom there would be no end. So, You can combine all that together, and in this ninth chapter, we're going to see the Messiah, His name, His rule, His kingdom. And we're going to see also, uh, at the second part of this uh, chapter, a judgment upon Israel for their rejection of Christ. And it's a four-stage judgment. We're going to see the impenitent nation, how they're unrepentant. And their four stages are like stanzas of judgment that will come upon them because of their rejection of Christ. Well, we thank you. And I realize that this is difficult. And it's difficult to uh, get over as well as to understand. But it's all there if we can just dig it out and you'll look into it as we try to develop the thoughts that we've established already uh, for the ninth chapter. So you read it ahead of time, and when you come together to study it in our next lesson Wednesday night, I think some of the things, questions in your mind will be clarified.